right. Good morning, everyone. Just want to start off by saying uh, what a privilege and an honor it is to be part of this community. I've been here for about three, four months. The music guy here, um, and it's been a joy. As um, I've been uh, charged to um, be the last uh, guest speaker before Pastor Otto comes back. I'm kind of the, the caboose of uh, our guest speakers here, so thankful to have this opportunity. Um, before before we start, let's open up our scriptures to Nehemiah chapter one. Here's a reading of God's word, Nehemiah chapter 1, 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Halkaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, the 12th to 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And he said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. There's certain words that can cause an instant reaction. Instant reaction, depending upon your age, that is. But uh, there are certain words like that. Like uh, if I say fire, people would instantly react. If I say uh, bingo, there's an instant reaction there as well. And for some of you younger, if I say ice cream, and all of a sudden faces will light up. There's an instant reaction. There's also words that can cause deep reaction, deep emotional reaction, like taxes or uh, war, right? There's a deep emotional connection there as well. And similarly, there can be a similar reaction if I say the word even wall. Wall. So many different ways you can go with that, even in today's political climate. But this was also a big issue 2,500 years ago. Wall. Wall. Israel had been taken into exile in Nehemiah, which meant that all the young men were gone. They were all spread out into secular um, provinces in Persia, such as like Daniel, leaving only the remnant who had survived the exile. And here is Nehemiah, a Jew living a thousand miles away, hears of this wall of Jerusalem that's in ruins. This causes both an instant and deep emotional reaction. How does he react here? He weeps, he mourns, He fasts, he prays for days as he hears this news. Nehemiah was not even born in Jerusalem. He had a regular, he actually had a very good job. He had a secular job, but he knew the significance of the walls of Jerusalem built by King Solomon generations before him. It was the dwelling place of God. Who could rebuild the walls? The remnant was too weak. Those who, were, those who could help were far displaced, and they had no personal connection to Jerusalem any longer. Except this guy named Nehemiah. He had a conviction here. And so here's a, here's a big idea I want to kind of get across to you here this morning. Rebuilding the walls was more than about its walls. It was about renewing the people of God. So I want to give you a couple of points. We're not going to look at just the first couple of verses here. I'm just going to kind of do a 30,000 kind of flyover um, 
of the first half of Nehemiah. So here's our first point here this morning, is that expected leaders emerge in the first two chapters. And we clearly can see here, Nehemiah was not the expected leader. He was born into civil service, worked his whole life to get into the position as a king's cupbearer. I don't think we know what a real cupbearer is, but it's kind of like being in the presidential cabinet. He was the secretary of the state, right? He only heard of Jerusalem, but he was raised in Scripture. He never had a personal connection, but he knew Scripture. We know nothing about his parents, but he was raised well in a secular society. He was the only one who seemed to actually care about the broken walls in where he was. His reputation is so highly regarded that he's given pay time off by the king. The king respects his position so much that he's like, you know, what, what concerns you, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah says, you know what? My hometown's walls are broken down. And the king says, you know what? Take off. And not only just that, here's my personal credit card. You take care of whatever you need to take care of, and you come back to me. Wow, what a, what a reputation to have. What a, what a standard to have, even in our world today to live a life in such a manner that those who are not Christian respect you so much that they would give you pay time off right away. So how is he qualified to save Jerusalem? How is he qualified? Right? Here's a, he's, he's an outsider. How is he qualified? Well, we know clearly that the whole Old Testament is full of unexpected people called to do the work of God. Aren't, don't we know this? You can name names right away. Moses, Elijah, Gideon, and even Jonah. Filled with people who are unexpected leaders called to do the work of God. And similarly, all of, all of our leaders here, elders, deacons, they are unexpected leaders as well, aren't they? They give their time, their talents to serve the needs of the church. They are not wanting, they don't have expectations to become ministers here but they're also simply cupbearers as well in the outside world who care about the people of God just as much as Nehemiah. Good leaders usually don't seek to be leaders. They're convicted to rise up for the good of the people. And Nehemiah is, a, is the, one of the highest examples of that. They're not seeking to have authority. They're not seeking to have credit. But they want to serve. They want to love. They care for the people of God. However, when leaders start to hold back their time and talents, the rest of the people will start to do that as well. And so it's a holy calling to be a leader. When elders are convicted to weep, mourn, and fast, and pray for the church like Nehemiah, the people will move in that direction as well. And so in the same way here, Nehemiah starts weeping and mourning and fasting and praying for the people of God a thousand miles away which means that God was already stirring the hearts of the people in Jerusalem before he even entered into Jerusalem itself. Unexpected leaders emerge. Point two, all hands on deck. In chapter three, Nehemiah doesn't even trumpet his arrival. He secretly inspects the broken walls and then galvanizes the people and says, come, let us rebuild the walls. Did they say no? No. God was already moving in the hearts of the people there. And so the moment he says, let's move, people start moving. And the remnant, who are the remnant here, right? They were 
were probably the ones who escaped the exile, which meant they were overlooked people. They were probably older, right? All the young men were taken away into civil service, like Daniel was. And so they probably were people who were overlooked. They were probably so-called weaker people. And yet they were exactly the people God had chosen to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. In chapter 3, you're going to see a whole bunch of names. Half, probably more than half of them you can't even pronounce. But it's in the book of Nehemiah for a reason. He wanted to send a message that as this book was being dispersed to all places outside of Jerusalem, that people would have a connection to at least one name there. That even though you are somebody living a thousand miles away, you would have one connection to at least a person who was rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Everyone played a role. Every person played a role in rebuilding this wall, down to even specific details. If you read chapter 3, it says a perfumer helped. I don't know what a perfumer is. But even he helped. Right? Uh, the sixth son helped. Right? This person sat next to that person. This person built this part of the wall. That person built that. And they all built next to each other. They all built their small portion of the wall because everyone mattered. And when everyone played their role, the wall was being built effectively. And let me ask you this. Do you know your role in this church? Do you know your role in this church? Are you willing to do whatever asked, or do you just pick and choose whatever you want? I mean, can you imagine? Everyone's doing their role in building this wall, and the one person's like, nah, I don't, I don't want to do that. It's kind of dirty. Meanwhile, everybody else is doing whatever it takes. Everyone played a role. Do you know your role? And think about the difference between a hotel and a hospital. It may not be a, the greatest of examples here, but when you think about a hotel, and you know, when you're a kid, and when you're young, and you go to your first vacation, and you can't wait to go to a hotel and just cause a mess, and you know that someone else is going to clean up for you, you know that you could jump on the bed, do whatever you want, because somebody's going to take, take care after you. Somebody else is paid to do that for you. It doesn't matter to you. You just come and you go. But what about a hospital? A hospital is you go there, and you're told what to do. And you do it because you trust that it is for your good. You give your time and your talents into that hospital. And you accept, you obey what they ask you to do because you know it's for your good. Do you know that a church ought to be in, this, in the same way, kind of like a hospital? That when you're told and you do and you trust because you know that it's for your good. Nehemiah was not invested in the wall so that people can lord it over others. He didn't, he, didn't go the, he didn't travel a thousand miles to rebuild the wall so that people can say, look, we, we're better than you guys now again. No, not at all. It was for, right, you can answer this, it was for God's glory. The people did not care what part of the wall they rebuilt. They were willing to do it all because, once again, they were reminded that it was for God's glory. Every hand was on deck here. Point number three is that there's unexpected and expected challenges. Whenever, any, whenever you do anything great for God, there's always opposition 
both from inside and out. There's always opposition. Always opposition. Opposition is a great indicator of your humility. When when you ever do anything good for God, you're like, you know, God, I'm going to do this for you. And then all of a sudden you feel opposition from somebody or something. And you realize, man, I kind of don't want to do this anymore. It's too hard. But it's a great indicator of your humility because it reminds you, is it about you or is it about God? What a wonderful way God teaches us. And whenever you want to do anything great for God, you're going to have to expect opposition. And here, opposition was very clear, even in Nehemiah. Opposition will reveal your character. There were two main antagonists right away in chapter 4. Their name was Sambalot and Tobiah. And in the Bible, usually they come in twos. They usually pair up, right? Because one person can't attack the... They need a partner with them. They need a partner in crime here. They usually come in twos. And even in the rest of Scripture, it's shown that way. In Moses, there were two, Yanis and Yambris, right? They built the golden calf to rebel against Moses. In the New Testament, there was Alexander and Hymenaeus against the ministry of Paul, and Paul was so devastated by their betrayal. In any group, it, it only takes two to spark a wildfire. It only takes a spark. You hear about the wildfires in California? I don't know how they know this, but they say that one of the biggest wildfires that happened last year, it was caused by a spark from a guy hitting a nail to hammer down his tent, and the spark flew off, causing one of the most, one of the most devastating wildfires. It's believable. Right? No, one goes out to, no one goes out to the California forest with a torch wanting to light it on fire. It happens with just a spark. And these people are usually insecure people with minor, minor authority who would rather destroy than to give it up. Their insecurity leads them to want to bring down people who want to work toward God's glory. They may not be as blatant as Sambalot and Tobiah, but their undertones are deceitful. They cause little rumors to be spread. But here's a key turning point here. How does Nehemiah respond? What does he do? Does he shout him back down? Does he, does, he, does he try to think of a strategy to get rid of them? No, he doesn't do any of that. Because once you start addressing the critics right away with your voice, you, you end up becoming the bad guy. Right? You ever do that? Right? You try to stand up against somebody who's a bully, and then in a way, you end up bullying the bully. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He prays for the protection of God's people. Simply prays, God protect us. Be with us for our good. And in verse 15 in chapter 4, it says, God frustrated their plans. That is, Sambalot and Tobiah. And every worker labored with a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. Why do they have a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other? Because as they were building the wall, they were ready to protect themselves from attack. Can you imagine that? Right? You have a trowel in one hand and you have a sword in the other. And you're laser focused in what the plan was set before you. The goal that was set before the people of Israel. To build a wall at any and every cost possible. That there would be no, nothing that would distract them away from building toward God's glory here. 
That's an, un, that's an expected challenge. There's also an unexpected challenge. In chapter 5, there was an unexpected challenge, a famine. You know, we don't have a famine nowadays. I don't think anyone's really, you know, I think we're all pretty well fed here. Right? But there's always circumstances out of our control. And wealthier Jews here started to take advantage of their fellow men, causing panic and division. When, when difficulties arise outside of our control, what do we do? We start to have anxiety, start to tighten ourselves here. Uncontrollable circumstances will always happen to test the resolve of the people. I don't know one church building project that did not have an outside circumstance. There's always difficulties when you're trying to build something. Whether it may not be a famine, but it could be a recession. It may not be a famine, but it could be a tragedy. It may not be a famine, but it could be another natural circumstance that seems to be going against the people of God. This, is, this causes people to panic, stress, hold back, pressure each other. But this is where good leadership rises above the, the storm here. What did Nehemiah do? He constantly reminds the people of God that this is for God. This is for God. And not only that, as Nehemiah, as he was the governor, he was charged to have authority over the place, he doesn't even take a salary himself because he knows how difficult it is. He knows the sacrifice that people around him are putting into this, that he doesn't even take a salary himself during this time. Good leaders maintain unity out of their own lives. Unity is difficult, isn't it? Kind of like an eggshell, isn't it? Right? An egg, you can just, it cracks very easily. It's weak. If you hold it, if you just, it could just break right in your hands. But it's also strong enough to do what? It's strong enough to also nurture life within that eggshell. And once we start seeing that, you know what? We, we need to nurture new life. We need to nurture into the next generation. We need to nurture the fact that, you know what, there's space for everyone to be involved here, that we're all sacrificing, that we're all putting our sweat, blood, and tears into this, causes people to focus themselves toward building the wall once again. An attractive church is shown by its willingness to care for the lowliest more than its own comfort. And Nehemiah made sure to send that message clear and loud and true. By chapter 6, Sambalot tries to he tries bribery, gossip, and even an assassination attempt to try to kill Nehemiah. But by then it's too late. The wall has been rebuilt. Anyone know how, many, how long it took for the wall to rebuild, be rebuilt? That's because you read it, right? Most of us we're probably thought like, you know what? It probably took at least, uh, at least maybe a few years. It took less than two months. Less than two months. Right? Some churches take at least two months to decide on the most frivolous things, don't we? Like, what kind of soda we're gonna have? Like, goodness gracious! Sometimes we just go like, look, the walls of Jerusalem was built in 52 days. 52 days. And in the following chapters here, all the exiles start to return back to Jerusalem because they hear that the walls have been rebuilt. 
and they settle into the city. The people gather to hear the law once again, celebrate its completion. And what do they do? They confess their sin as a, as a body, turning back to God, renewing their covenant before the Lord. It's more than about the wall. It's about, it's about people coming back, turning back their hearts toward the heart of God, confessing their sin, renewing their hearts before the Lord. So what? So what? Okay, it happened back then. Can it happen today? Yes, it can. It's more than about the walls of Jerusalem then. And what makes it more, what makes it more than about a wall? These walls were not meant for borders. Right? It's not meant for separation, as I mentioned. It's not even meant for warfare. Right? The walls are going to fall down again. It was meant for God's presence to dwell with his people. And this is what even our church wall should symbolize for us today. It's a place of refuge and renewal in a broken world. It's kind of like an, it's a bit of an oasis if you think about it that way. Right? You go and live your life in, the, in, the, in our secular society and you can be so discouraged. You can be broken down and being, you can be like, man, I, I don't really have any hope. But the church walls here is a place where you're restored you're reminded that you do have hope, that you do have someone who is far beyond your comprehension, who cares for you. And that takes everyone believing that together. General, uh, there's a well-known general, his name was Stanley McChrystal, and he noted that effective teams require three key elements. And this is a general saying this. I was, I was taken aback when he noted how simple it is for effective teams to have that sense of unity together. People know their roles. Everyone on the team knows their roles precisely. They have a common purpose. They know what to accomplish. And they experience the shared suffering together. They suffer well together. And I think we can say that, you know what, I know... Nehemiah knew his role, right? I think I know my role. I think we, we can understand the common purpose, but the element of shared suffering is the most powerful thing that fuses people together. That's why the family unit is so important, because the element of shared suffering brings about that deep connection. And in our spiritual family, we need to also have that shared suffering to fuse not our hearts together merely, but to be fused in a way where we have our focus set upon God's glory whenever we come back and meet together. Nehemiah knew that. He took no credit. He took no credit at all. He didn't put his name on any part of the wall. Right? When you go to a museum, you'll see a bunch of names, don't you? Right? You'll see names of people like, oh, they're the platinum guys who gave this much money. They're the people who gave that much money. Even if you go to a park and you sit on a bench, you'll see someone's name there. Right? This was given by this person. Don't forget that person. Here's Nehemiah. He didn't put his name on anything. And I believe that's a key point for us to be reminded of in church. It's not about my name. It's about God's name. It's not about who I am. It's about who he is for me. Nehemiah did precisely that. 
What did he do after the wall was built? What did he do? Do you know? He went back to work. He went back a thousand miles to go back to work. Here's a guy who knew exactly who he was. He had no insecurities. He had laser focus. And he knew that it was all for God's glory. Today, there's more urgency for people to feel that sense of belonging. To know that, you know what? If the walls are rebuilt once again, that people can come and return back and be a part of a community that truly does love God. What are, what are our church walls symbolize? Does it symbolize that? Not in a literal sense. We know that. I mean, these walls will come and go. I was talking with uh, Tom Harrell this morning, and he's, uh, he's a, over 100 years old. Right? And, um, and some of you probably would believe that. Um, and he's, I was mentioning, how long have you been here? And uh, he said, uh, I've been here six months after this church was built. He's been here for 20 years. And you know what? It may not last another 20 years. Who knows? By God's grace, it can last another 20 years. But it's not the walls itself, is it? It's about the figurative understanding that everyone has a place in building the walls, the metaphorical walls of the church. Everyone has a place here. But when you have a place, you need to know, have a role. You need to be willing to share in that suffering. You need to be willing to share in the common goal of building toward restoring God's glory in this place once again. We may not have literal walls broken down, but we know that there's seasons of good and seasons of difficulty. But we're all suffering together. We're all praying and, and weeping and hoping that once again, God will restore his presence here. And he will honor that, right? The church is more than about its walls, isn't it? It's a living history of God's blessing on his people. It's a reminder. Every time the wall, when the wall was built in time of Solomon, people celebrated and the wall fell. It was built again and the people celebrated and the wall fell. But what, what hasn't changed is God's faithfulness. God was faithful to the remnant then, and so he is still faithful to his remnant today. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you know that? God showed his highest faithfulness to us. How? How did he show his highest faithfulness to us? What did he do? Did he build another wall? No, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ. He came as the better Nehemiah. He also sat at the right hand of a king. And he said, there's a people who need me. He left his kingdom of heaven to call his remnant to himself. This is why Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10. He knows his sheep. He knows his remnant. He knows those who are still hoping, still believing. You know your faith is truly faith when people around you aren't believing that too much, right? He knows that. He knows his sheep, and the sheep know him. Do you know that? Whenever Nehemiah faced a difficulty, what did he do? As you read the first half of Nehemiah, whenever there was difficulty, 
Nehemiah interjects a little saying, right? He says, uh, God, remember me for my good. Whenever there was a difficulty, he says, God, strengthen my hand as the story goes along. And so it is for us here today that we gather on a Sunday morning to do the same thing. God, remember me. God, strengthen me. I'm trying my best to want to see the walls be built once again. See this, see this parkway community to be restored and renewed once again. God, remember us. Help us to work toward building the walls of our fellowship so that, God, you get all the glory. And in doing so, that we might get joy in doing that. In our work here, I pray that we be reminded that we here are faithful sheep who can call out in the same way. God, remember us. God, strengthen us. Be with us. Lord, we are, we are here. We're gathered here for the glory of your name. And in doing so, God will bless you. God will stir in your hearts. God will raise up Nehemiah. God will bring about